Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Morena, everyone. I hope you are having a fabulous week and you really enjoyed your Easter break. Now, today I have the pleasure of bringing to you my discussion with Dr. Mark Kukazella. Dr. Mark is a professor at West Virginia University School of Medicine and is also a Lieutenant Colonel in the US Air Force, designing programs to promote health and better fitness in the military with the USAF Efficient Running Project. In his community and medical school, Mark has been a tireless promoter of nutritional interventions in patients with any spectrum of the metabolic syndrome. And he is responsible for introducing low-carb options for hospital patients. He is a member of the Nutrition Coalition, which advocates for scientific scrutiny in nutritional policy. And he's also a certified math practitioner. Now, math, maximal aerobic function, comes from Phil Maffetone, who you may remember I had on my show in episode two of Wikipedia, talking all about COVID. I came across Mark at the Ancestral Health Society conference in Boulder, Colorado, where he did a presentation on his approach for type two diabetes in the hospital. And that's not the only approach that is being used, but it certainly is successful. And he's turning heads with his ability to improve the health of those patients. Not only that, Mark has a stellar running record to his name and actually opened one of the first barefoot running focused shoe shops in USA. So he has been a competitive runner for over 30 years with more than 100 marathon and ultra marathon finishes. And he has a unique streak of 30 years running a marathon under three hours. Shoot, that would be nice, wouldn't it? He also is the race director for Freedom's Run Race Series in West Virginia, and he's the director of the National Running Center, an education portal designed to teach healthier running. Mark obviously has a lot of strings to his bow, and we dive right into his approach to metabolic health, how he happened upon it, and what he's doing now to promote better health for his patients and the people that he comes into contact with. You can reach Mark at his website, drmarksdesk.com slash about, and you'll find everything related to his shoe clinic, the natural running center, and also his work with the United States Air Force. So without delay, here's my conversation with Mark Kukazella. Good morning, Mark, how are you? Oh, I'm great, it's afternoon here, but it's tomorrow where you are and that's all good. Isn't that interesting? I'm in, you are looking at the future, basically. <laughs> so yeah, bright. Yeah, like <laughs> the future hours is ahead. bright. Yeah. Mark, you know, tomorrow, um, if tomorrow's going to be a, a better day, you can clue me in. So <laughs> absolutely will be. Give me good news. Now, we, we were just talking before about how we could take this conversation in a number of different directions because when I, you know, I, I came across you in um, prior to 2016, but I saw you present at the 2016 Ancestral Health Society conference or we we definitely communicated maybe you saw me present anyway um and then i've you know done a lot of looking in and around on pubmed with your publications um and you seem to have such a seminal role in kind of bringing lifestyle into the management of type 2 diabetes which i really want to talk about um but also like myself you're a runner and you know like i feel like there's this 
real synergy in terms of our potential love for running and, and what it can bring. And one of my original questions was going to be how your clinical practice came to kind of include a lot of this lifestyle intervention stuff, which is, I, I think, not unusual, but just it's not as common as, as what it could be. But of course, it probably stemmed from your own experience as being a runner and then kind of changing things for you. Can you kind of kick us off by giving us your backstory into how you kind of fell into the field that you're in? Yeah, I'll, I'll give the short backstory. <laughs> you know, I'm 54, I'm a professor at West Virginia University School of Medicine and have a mix of uh, clinical practice, some hospital work. I'm in West Virginia, for those listening um, who are familiar with the United States, our, our state's burdened with really poor health. We're either number one or number two for diabetes and obesity, a lot of food economy issues, food insecurity issues, you know, affording good food policy around that. Um, but, I, you know, I spent a number of years active duty and then reserve. I just retired from the Air Force a few years ago, 29 years in. And if you had talked to me 10 years ago, I would have said, well, people just need to exercise more and eat less and, you know, because, you know, it's kind of what works, right? Because we all kind of believe that and we're told that. And uh, even though we didn't really see it work in an obese population or a diabetic population, most of the people I dealt with in the service were pretty well people. I was a flight doc, so we deal with air crew. And, you know, if they're super sick, they're out of the Air Force. I really didn't have a lot of experience with working with the horribly sick insulin-resistant patients until um, I actually came to West Virginia 15 years ago. So I, I got off active duty at the, I was in Colorado at the time, and you know, you saw Boulder, you know, it's hard to find someone who's not well in Boulder. Mm. I took a job at University of Colorado, um, which is in Denver, a, another very active and well population. And then I decided to move back closer to my family across the country back to uh, West Virginia, which I was raised in Maryland, but um, this area is very close. And I like the mountains and the hills, Mickey. Like, as you know, if you don't have good trails, mm. your life is not fun. So this place I found to live, the trails look the same as when I was a kid. Um, and my dad would take me hiking. So I, I settled here in West Virginia. But immediately the, the people were different, right? The obesity rate, you know, in the 1990s, uh, you know, 2000s started to skyrocket, you know, like a skateboard ramp and moved here in the early 2000s. And obesity rate was about double here in West Virginia as it was in Colorado. So it, in Colorado, maybe one patient a day would have one of those issues. So it yeah. really wasn't high on my radar. Uh, but in West Virginia, it was. But what was kind of the Damascene moment, so to speak, you know, something that really changed me. So I got assigned uh, for a six-month um, duty by the Air Force to help them with the fitness test in about 2012. Mm. They had tightened up the screws on the test, meaning, you know, the, the standards were now geared back to a running test, and 60% of your score was a run test. It's a mile-and-a-half run. And if you fail the run test, you're out of the Air Force. So, you know, you know, analogy of what that would impact to anyone listening, your work's in an institution. You know, if you work in a big hospital or university, imagine they came in, you know, uh, on Friday and said, you all got to line up for a fitness test. Nice. And if you fail the run, you know, have a nice day. Maybe we'd put you on some three-month remedial program, but, you know, good odds you're going to be separated from that job. Yeah. And uh, so the failure rates went up, and somehow I, I got brought in to be a consultant on this project and given six months exclusively to design a program to help the running component. 
you know, I've been involved in running for so many years of my life. Um, but when I dug into that project, looking at issues around why people were failing, you know, kind of the null hypothesis I came into that was, well, they just need to learn how to run better, you know, or something. Yeah. Maybe they need to run barefoot or something. But I quickly saw that obesity was really the biggest driver of the failure rates. And I, I thought I understood obesity, Mickey. You know, mm -hmm. we all learned that you eat less and exercise more, you would lose weight. Um, even though probably none of us witnessed that. Um, so it just by kind of dumb luck, you know, I, I had time, right? Like I, I had six months to do this project. So you just start reading and researching and following links on the internet. And I came across Gary Taubes' article, Maybe It's All Been a Big Fat Lie. Yeah. And I pull up that article and I read it. And I was like, oh, that's different. And then I bought his book, you know, Good yeah. Calories, Bad Calories. Yeah. It's called The Diet Delusion in the UK, if you're from the, I don't know what the title of that book is in New Zealand. What is it? I think it's Good Calories, Bad Calories here okay. as well. Yeah, because yeah, it's published in so many countries. And, mm -hmm. you know, I read that thing a couple times, you know, that was a pretty thick read and um, kind of got me thinking about the endocrinology of obesity. It made me flip that food pyramid upside down in my mind, but still wasn't convinced. But then I was on kind of a tour at the time going to so many of these military bases kind of listening to the airmen and instructing them on how to better prepare for the tests. And I wanted to learn from that experience. I'd always been like a base gym and asked the question, you know, has anyone ever lost 50 pounds and kept it off for a year? You know, you'd have 100 people that didn't want to be there because <laughs> they were all, you know, remedial on the test. And they're like, you know, like this. And here's, here's this runner guy, you know, telling us how to run. And But, but you know, you want to kind of have some fun with it. And, you know, across the board, no, no matter what base I was or what country I was, uh, the answer would be something like this. You know, well, I, I'm give, I gave up all sugar, gave up all the bread and soda. I'm doing paleo, and 2012 paleo would have been like, you know, something you would hunt and gather. There wasn't paleo junk food bars or anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then a, a gutsy one would actually say, you know, under their breath, because I was a doc, they'd have afraid I would yell at them, but they'd say, well, I'm doing this thing called <coughs> Atkins or something, you know, and I'm like, yeah, and because they, they were afraid to, to tell anyone that, and I, but never did someone say, well, I, you know, I'm doing this uh, low-fat diet, you know, that the American Heart Association recommends, so that was kind of observational validation, you know, at the time, you just see it. Can I ask, Mark, when you, like, what were your current, what were your practices when you came across Gary Taubes with regards to your own diet? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I was, you know, I was a runner, you know, I ran in college, was racing marathons. Um, so, I mean, I was a carbaholic, you know, because we all thought that was the way it was. I mean, I would, in college, we were all like low fat, high carb, you know, pasta, lots of bread. Um, but, you know, we were young and burning. Um, so it was kind of a serendipitous, you know, kind of maybe stars aligned, you know, whether for full catastrophe or the enlightened moment. But, uh, you know, we need a military physical every year and they check all your blood work. And, you know, I would never go to doctors, you know, well, people tend not to, especially guys, right? Yeah. They, they, yeah, unless you break your ankle. But my, um, it was, it was right at, during that tour, I was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and, and uh, my blood glucose was high. It was in like the 140 range or something like that, but they checked an A1C and it was um, above six, um, like six two, six three range. And, uh, you know, I looked like this, you know, I looked like, you know, runner. And, and uh, you know, the doc there was a bit curious and um, set, sent off a test called a C-peptide. I'd never ordered that test as a family doc, didn't know what that was. And mine came back at 0.3 and I had to kind of look up what that was. And, um, and then- uh, And what is yeah, it? So, yeah, C-peptide is uh, it's a 
It's a protein that sits on the insulin molecule or the pro-insulin molecule. So it measures your insulin production. Mm. Um, so, so 0.3 is, is barely making insulin. So, so you're on this type 1 spectrum. So oh, wow. it's kind of like you're in the early type 1 spectrum. Yeah. And, um, and that explained, you know, why my sugars were high. I couldn't, I, I wasn't producing enough insulin, but I was super insulin sensitive. Mm. Um, so they put a CGM on me for, I, I have one on my arm now, um, but they put, back then they were more research um, based that, you know, you couldn't like call up your doc and go to the pharmacy and get a Libre. I wore one for three days just to see what was going on, and it was fascinating. I was waking up, Nikki, every morning at like two in the morning, kind of like I needed to eat. Yeah. And I, I just thought it was because I was running and was burning calories, and I couldn't make it more than four hours without eating. But yeah. what was happening was you'd get these glucose spikes and these big crashes. So I was like spiking and crashing like all day, and I, and, and it was like, oh yeah, that makes sense now because I eat a big bowl of cereal at 10 p.m., wake up at 2 in the morning, and eat another bowl of cereal. You know, I would never think of going out and running without putting a bagel in me before the run. And um, I, I was just chasing this without any insight. And then, um, you know, since I had already read Taubes about the obesity and I had been reading about, you know, the safety of, of a high-fat, low-carb diet, you know, just from a, you know, a couple years ago, if you'd asked me about bacon and eggs, I would have said, well, Mickey, that will give you a heart attack. Totally. You know, that's what yeah, yeah. I learned. But I was pretty convinced after reading his book that, oh, wow, like I could go ahead and eat bacon and eggs. So that was the hard lockdown. I, I turned the food pyramid upside down, you know, right away, you know, because yeah. if you're diabetic, you're out of the military. So it was, I kind of kept that, you know, as a flight doc, we all try to do what's, you know, we kind of hack things. You know, you, you try to manage your issues without it coming to the surface, yeah, right? Because yeah. then you're out, right? Yeah. You're so, but you're you're essentially not diabetic if you can eat and not need medication. So, I've been probably twenty to thirty grams of carbs a day since 2012. Wow! You know, I don't count. I just don't eat food other than some veggies. I just don't eat food with carbohydrates. Yeah. You know, it's meat, eggs, cheese. Yeah. Fish, if I can get fish. Yeah. A lot of you know salad vegetables and yeah did you repeat. notice any <laughs> difference in kind of obviously the hunger but anything else oh god more? yeah like i didn't realize how horrible i felt right you don't i think because you're just you know like everyone who's like over training syndrome right you're kind of like in it and you don't even know it yeah until you get out of it yeah and it was like wow i can like eat dinner go to bed not wake up amazing <laughs> wake yeah in the middle of the night go for a run yeah you know work up an appetite and come back to a four egg omelet um and i wasn't like i was it was out of necessity you know because we think that people are just lack of willpower but you know i'd be the one you know mickey that they'd bring the you know the pharmaceutical reps back in those days would bring uh plates of bagels and sit them at the break room and, and I'd be the one who would be foraging these bagels you know like grab an extra one because I knew at two in the afternoon you know I'd be the one who needed the like that that behavior yeah was driven by the hormonal drive of I knew that I would need some form of carb because you, you spike and then you crash because it yeah absolutely they, they, there's two insulin responses there's a first phase and second phase so my second phase was more intact when they kind of interrogated the CGM. So what happens is you get this spike because your first phase insulin response doesn't respond, glucose spike, but the second phase insulin response kicks in 
and if you're highly insulin sensitive you crash like a you know like a black diamond ski slope yeah just go from 250 down to 50 like boom yeah and you feel horrible yeah hangry right that's you just i don't want to experience that again it was not good and like if you look at my monitor now it's a it's beautifully boring right so you see it's oh, yeah. 117 now yeah yeah you know i'm never really normal because i'm still in that low insulin state you know so but it's it is what it is but it's flat yeah amazing it, it's flat any surprises mark so you know we were speaking just before we came on the call and i mentioned that i'd spoken to zach zach bitter who mm-hmm. also has been looking at his um blood sugar response using a, oh, okay. a, a Libra He's and, with it too. and have you and he he notices that you know there are certain times of the day where it might be the dawn phenomenon where you know he yeah. he says he looks at a cup of coffee just before training and his blood sugar spikes yeah. so if you look at today yeah so I don't know if you can see six I, I ran at about 7 a.m. oh I see that for yeah, an yeah. hour and my sugar went up to 160 yeah interesting um, from running yeah. um, because my body can make which Zach's can too. So a healthy body can make carbohydrate, can make energy. And if you don't have super adequate insulin response, you're not, like I can make my sugar go up to 200 pretty easy exercising. Yeah. But it'll come down when I stop because yeah. then the insulin sensitivity kicks in and you're not making glucose. You're not getting the gluconeogenesis. So that's not an unhealthy thing. No. Oh yeah, and I think I heard Zach talking about that. Like he kind of has a similar thing. Like he'll make he'll make sugar when he runs. I mean, the body makes it for fuel. And then how quickly are you disposing of it? This is a low intensity run, not a high intensity run. And it went, uh, I think it peaked out at like, these things are great for anyone listening. You know, these little monitors. Yeah, so it peaked out at 165. See, it was 97 when I woke up. And then I went running, it was 165. But then it came, my next reading was 119. It's really interesting, Mark. Like your experience is, is not uncommon with regards to what your blood sugars look like as a as a as an athlete. And it's not that everyone might be in a similar position where their C peptide is low and therefore you you have this inability to produce insulin. But some I've heard the theory that you know people who are very lean, um, who have high blood sugar, it might be that they're unable to dispose of the glucose into fat because they're unable they don't have the fat stores available and that might also for a higher carbohydrate athlete might um, uh, increase their blood sugar and therefore increase mm-hmm. it be at a greater health risk than if they were someone who was able to to carry a bit of extra body fat to be able to dispose of that glucose in that fuel if you like um, so whilst you've got this this uh, condition where you're unable to produce insulin it doesn't mean that that was necessarily the only reason why a runner will have high blood sugar because it can actually just be through the diet alone if people yeah true yeah yeah can and we don't know i think what we do know is you know highly blood glucose spikes glycation from dietary sources might be different than if my blood glucose rises from exercise and drops quickly yeah interesting so there's a lot we don't know so i mean if i had a donut my blood sugar went to 200 you know and i did that you know every day is that more nefarious to my health than going running every day where my blood sugar might go up to 200 so i'll take the i'll I'll just guess that the running is probably better than eating a donut because there's so many others you know the mental health aspects of the run yeah yeah um, calms us down and de-stresses us and stresses 
is nasty. <laughs> so it's everything's a trade-off. So then, Mark, um, if I bring it back to kind of you were on tour, this was all happening for you at that time and you'd switched your diet. Um, what kind of messages were you putting out there to the men and the women that you were speaking to who had to change what they were doing? And obviously you were there to talk about the running test, but like, did diet feature in conversations you subsequently had? Yeah, so it's a, you know, it's, this is a slow grind and uh, we all know it's a lonely place when you're trying to promote something that goes completely against conventional wisdom and institutional thinking as well as medical dogma. So I, I kind of buried deep into this for about a year when I got off that military assignment, just kept reading and reading. And, you know, kind of one-to-one -one if I was with a patient, I might bring up low carbohydrate, but it didn't really push for any institutional change. And then I went down, uh, Tim Noakes and I uh, taught a course together down in South Africa in 2013 and got to run the wonderful Comrades Marathon. Amazing. If anyone is um, a runner out there, it's the oldest ultra. It's like a 56-mile run and uh, got to, you know, run that with Zola Bud. You know, she was part of our group down there. Just amazing humans and, and people. And, uh, you know, Tim I had respected my whole life as the preeminent sports scientist and we were giving this course and he said, I'm gonna give the talk on nutrition. And uh, I was like, cool, I'm just curious about what Tim has to say. And um, and then it, it blew me away because he was like a brother from another mother. It was, he, he dissected five years of his research on how everything he thought was true about nutrition was wrong. And, he, you know, he said, you know, at the end of that, he said this, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know if I'm right, but, you know, he's very humble about it, but I think I've outread every single person in this space. And so right now I think I'm right. Yeah. yeah and yeah. so when Tim Noakes, when, when Tim Noakes says he's read about this for five years and he says, I think I'm right, I'm in. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I don't need to read anymore. I mean, I do read a lot, but, but I was like, okay. I, and he just presented the case, you know, it's just like a, a, you know, jury and judge. Like he just presented, cause he became, you know, every, I think a lot of people, He's another one you should get on the show, but he's all over the place. Put him in, and he was, you know, they tried to strip his license. In, I know, amazing. In uh, South Africa, and and they they didn't even have questions for the the prosecutions didn't even question his witnesses. They were so strong. I know. They said, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Zoe Harkum, uh, you know, uh, Nina Teicholtz, and uh, Karen Zinn. I think Karen's yeah. New Zealand, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah, good friend. Yeah. Yeah. So Karen Zinn. So it's called Real Food on Trial. Um, lore of nutrition for people who want to read that sordid story of a tweet. Yeah. And this was before the tweet. So I came back after that trip and presented to my hospital, you know, made the case for, because at that time the hospital ADA diet, meaning American Diabetes Association or American Dietetics Association, whichever D you threw in there, but they all aligned that, you know, it's uh, 60 gram carbs is the minimum it's like an 1800 calorie 60 gram carb diet yeah and at that per time meal. i kind of knew per meal mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. and i knew kind of the math on diabetes from my own blood you know i'd been checking my sugar without a monitor you know without the continuous monitor you know four times a day you know ad libitum you know just every day and i knew that you know in richard bernstein's work shows that 10 grams of carbs raises your blood glucose 40 points if you have diabetes yeah amazing it's pretty simple math you know and um and uh, so presented the paradigm of how about we give our patients in the hospital a 10 gram carb per meal option. 
How did that with go education? Down? You know, you 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 know, you don't just order that for a patient who's bread addicted. You go in and discuss it with them, and say, "I have an option with you, Mickey. You know, we could um, feed you double eggs, extra meat, extra salad. Yeah. You know, no bread, no sweet drinks. Yeah. No uh, side dishes, and check your sugar, and not give you sliding scale insulin. Yeah. And, you and what give did that your colleagues say? Well, they, it was there. Everyone was skeptical at first, but actually, it was, I work in a small hospital, and it's mm. easier to move small rocks than big rocks. Mm. So it's a twenty-four bed critical access hospital, and at that time, you know, we had a number of staff and nurses. You know, I mean, the, yeah, we're all in this obesogenic environment, especially night shift nurses. You know, we had a couple of nurses lose like a hundred plus pounds. Amazing. So I had all these allies, because um, we were kind of like doing this little little rogue, you know, just amongst ourselves. So presented. Um, the case to our administration, you know, with a stack of papers, yeah. and uh, my dean uh, understood the physiology of this at the time, and he, and and it was fine. They they let us do it. Ten gram carb per meal diet. My RD was awesome. Uh, she created these little menus, you know, that the kitchen staff they don't count carbs, but it would be the menu, like the ten gram carb menu on Monday would be fish in a salad or something. Yeah, you know that it would, you know, it'd be. Eight to tw- I mean, who knows how many grams of carbs, but it was, they were the right foods. Yeah. And, you know, we wouldn't do sliding scale insulin, which is for a type 2 diabetes patient, you know, for people listening, sliding scale is like an autopilot dose of insulin yeah. based on what their pre-meal blood sugar is. But what one unit of insulin does to a type 1 is completely different than a type 2, you know, who's insulin resistant. So you could crash somebody yeah. with eight units of insulin, or you could not even touch somebody. Yeah, amazing. But to put it in relative terms for someone listening, insulin is a powerful medicine, right? So if you're insulin sensitive, you take a type 1, a patient who doesn't make insulin, who's well, athletic, someone like myself, if you gave me one unit of insulin, I'd drop 40 points, right? So if you give five units of insulin to someone just because it sounds like a round number and you're going to give it because your last patient five units didn't do much at all but then you give this other patient five units Mm. just because their pre-meal glucose is the same by your autopilot the one you can crash and i mean no kidding in a hospital setting which should never happen you know we can harm people in a hospital setting managing their glucose i mean that's that's like should never happen yeah yeah or we can mismanage them if someone's sugars and we're seeing this with covid right they're three or four hundred they're insulin resistant they're cytokine storm insulin has a direct effect on the beta cells of the pancreas high glucose levels lend to poor outcomes and yet we're just playing around with the insulin i mean these people need big doses they need like yeah they need like big boy doses right to put it in a yeah so you can't just you got to actively manage it but yeah, so it, it gained acceptance, but there was a process. Then it kind of had some backlash, some of the nurses who were teaching it because it was against the nursing protocols, you know, because they have to follow the guidelines. So this was called like Mark's diet, which wasn't my diet. It's just a low-carb diet. Yeah. Um, so it came to another head, and then it was exonerated again. But it's not commonly used by every single person here. Um, it's not used in any of our bigger hospitals, uh, although fr- this Friday you know, which is Saturday for you, we have a conversation to implement this because now COVID has made things become acutely aware that this high glucose and hospital management is important. So we're finally now, because of COVID, having a conversation with the larger hospital to start an inpatient protocol, you know, involving dietary control 
of the carbohydrates as well as active management of the blood glucose with medication. So there's there's both arms of it. Yeah. So with regards to the dietary control, is that so when when I caught up with you in Boulder in 2016, you showed me your a sheet of paper that detailed out kind of options for people, and there was a red. Um, avoid these foods. There was yeah, that's that's Tim Noakes's. Oh, uh, there you go. Uh, yeah, sometimes I mean, yeah. foods and then the everyday foods. And did you work with patients to help them understand what they were able to eat versus what they would ideally avoid? Yeah, that's that's kind of what it comes down to. And I, I just published a little book, like a patient book. It's called Low Carb on Any Budget, and we can share that with with your readers. Oh, just amazing. a free download. We we got it. I got a grant. But to, you know, you, you you borrow what's the best stuff. So Real Meal Revolution. Anyone can go onto that site, and these are the famous food lists. So Tim's first book um, was called Real Meal Revolution, which his first book on nutrition, and he had the famous green list, yeah. yellow list, red list. So, yeah, yeah. And it's just information. So green are your beautiful low carb natural foods. It's going to be meats. It's going to be fish. It's going to be eggs. It's going to be natural fats. And it's going to be all the non-starchy vegetables. So that's the safe place. Um, so many patients have no idea that like whole wheat bread is not good for their diabetes. Yeah. Or, you know, there's so much hogwash and marketing and misinformation. You know, well, fruit's a natural sugar. It doesn't count. You know, so yellow list is kind of caution, but it's a good conversation point. You know, okay, so here are these foods that, you know, yeah, they're not... Foods aren't healthy or unhealthy. It's what your body does with them, right? Mm. So bananas and grapes and, you know, maybe even some potatoes, sweet potatoes. You know, these are natural foods, but they might raise blood sugar. So check your sugar. And then red is clearly avoid yeah, all yeah. the flour, uh, sweet drinks, most of the obvious culprits, Yeah. pasta, rice. But these are the addictive foods. So then we talk about addiction, which yeah. is another whole topic. But if they're not aware of what's harming them it's this is harder than giving up smoking mickey because they're all aware the cigarettes doing harm and they can give up smoking and not smoke Mm. but you have to eat yeah so this is harder no kidding i mean i've been doing this for nine years with people now and it's it's not easy right this is they have to understand it have discipline be committed to do it have access to you yeah be willing to fail get back on board it's um yeah it's it's tough it's a tough road out and at least for the people that you were talking to and working with you're in that hospital setting you're the doc and the people around them are kind of voices of authority so i wonder whether that lends you know itself in in favor for the the patients kind of taking on board those messages because as a nutritionist as I work with people and I'm kind of counseling them on the types of foods they should be eating which are quite different potentially from what their doctor told them with regards to saturated fat and you know they get less buy-in from me despite the fact they've paid for my services because the voice of authority in their head is their doctor so I feel like the fact that this is happening in a hospital setting that it would has the potential to be more successful is it is it is that the case like yeah, I think it is the case because you know when we um, we published a paper on our protocol and it's teamwork. So, so if your patient Mickey was told by you, well the eggs are fine, the you know the natural saturated fats. I mean we eat real food. It's it's fine. It's going to be you know the polyunsaturated vegetable oils, corn oils, margarines, and things like that are are more nefarious. But then if they're a cardiologist with a longer white coat, 
you know, says directly to that patient, well, you know, Mickey's wrong, the eggs are going to cause a heart attack. They're confused. They get, you know, Gary Taubes calls a cognitive dissonance, you yeah. know, so you can't hold two opposing ideas in your head at the same time. So, you know, so if we were, if the patient chose this pathway, we would do medication reduction. You know, we had to reduce their insulin, sulfonylureas. Uh, so the pharmacy team wouldn't go in and counsel them about, you know, giving insulin for carbohydrates, yeah. right? Yeah, As yeah. we're telling them not to eat the carbohydrates, let's let's just not eat the carbs and not use the pre-meal insulin. Mm. You know, a lot of them need basils, but, you know, we work with that. And then the RD, if they were going to come in, and if this was a low-carb pathway patient, they wouldn't show that standard plate. I mean, patients were learning in diabetes education training, you know, done mostly by RDs, you know, the plate. And the plate tells a diabetes patient to have three servings of starch at every meal. Yeah. And they come to you and say, this is, even the patients are like, well, that doesn't make any sense, doc. They tell me to have three starches at every meal. And whenever I do that, my sugar's high. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, no, you're right. We just need to, you know, I should have brought the plates. I would walk around with the plate that they used to use for education for the otherwise well person, which has, you know, a third of it is starch. Yeah. And I just have a red pen. Yeah. I was like, you just don't eat that part of the plate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? The veggies are good. The meat's good. You know, the eggs are good because that was like the little part. So we just widen that out and uh, don't have, uh, don't just don't eat that part. But yeah, they, and, and I'm, I'm in a play in my state. I mean, like if you tell people, oh, it's okay to eat, you know, meat and eggs, they grew up on this stuff, right? This is. This is not Boulder, you know, where they're yeah, all, yeah. I mean, no kidding. There's not this, you know, vegetarian culture where yeah. everyone thinks that animals are, are bad for your health and the environment. You know, I'm, I live in, in a very rural kind of area and, you know, the people grew up on farms and they had their own chickens and their own animals and, you know, they treated them humanely and there was part of the, the way they lived and ate. You know, they would never throw the lard out, right? <laughs> yeah, that good, yeah, that was like what you cooked your eggs in the next day. So, so it wasn't some weird extreme way of eating it was almost oh, going wow, back to kind of yeah you going know, back to almost yeah and you say you know gosh you know did any of your grandparents have any of these problems and they're like well no oh, no. <laughs> you know? yeah. no and uh, so it's cool it's, it's fine yeah mark i saw that you published a paper in the british journal of um, general practice that looked at adapting diabetes medications for low carbohydrate management like it was a practical guide for other practitioners or physicians to, I suppose, to address exactly that. Like, how would you manage medication for a client who or a patient who subsequently goes low carb? And I wonder how much of the the pushback from physicians is potential just lack of knowledge of how to manage that side of it. Do you, do you want to describe kind of the um, the impetus for the paper and and yeah, the, I mean, it's a great question. It was fun working with uh, David Unwin uh, from the UK, uh, David Kevan uh, for the UK, um, Campbell Murdoch, um, and uh, Dr. Patel, another pharmacist over there. So we had an endo, a pharmacist, and uh, two GPs like myself. And so just like any medical procedure, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. So the only risk of, of prescribing a low-carbohydrate, or maybe we'd say, I like terms that, you know, I'm learning new terms from colleagues, therapeutic carbohydrate reduction or something yeah, like yeah. that, right? People aren't terrified. That sounds safe, right? Low-carb, that sounds dangerous. Yeah, yeah. You know, so ther let's call it therapeutic carbohydrate reduction, and you're on, 
you know, large doses of insulin and these sulfonylurea medications, which make your pancreas squeeze out more insulin. So if you cut the carbohydrates in your diet, uh, maybe you go online, right? People are doing this because the most popular search term now in Google for diet is, is keto or low carb. I mean, because it works, right? There's hundreds of Facebook groups and recipe books because it's there's this underground tribe because people don't get support from the medical system. So the only downside would be if someone just starts this way of eating and they're on big doses of these medications, right? So you have to adjust the medications down. Blood pressure medications need to come down. So it's like any protocol. So yeah, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. Um, so that was a, an article that focused on that medication side. And we have a, a textbook, uh, those same authors and some additional authors, we have a textbook chapter and another paper expanding on that. Should be out in a couple months, you know, with international collaborative group, you know, so, and most of this is actually, we're all doing the same things in different parts of the world. It's easier to deprescribe than to prescribe, but like as a student, Mickey, like a med student and a medical resident, I didn't get a single lecture on how to deprescribe, meaning how to take medicines away. Mm, interesting. Had thousands of hours of teaching on how to prescribe medications, but everyone's afraid. Just medical culture is, well, it's dangerous to stop medicine. Little do we know it's dangerous to give more medicine because the more medications you're on, especially for diabetes, and we've shared the data in multiple articles, the more medications you're on for diabetes, the sooner you will die. And that's true, you know, Advance, Accord, these are large multi-center NIH-funded trials, um, which were stopped early because of the red flags. You know, wait, the treatment group is having more cardiovascular events. You know, if you're giving more insulin sulfonylureas to your type 2 diabetes patients, they are getting sicker. Yeah. Now, this is so a bit conspiracy theory for me to ask this, but, you know, is there any pushback from the pharmaceutical kind of element of, of um, medicine oh, of with course. regards it's, to... It's not direct. It's subtle, but maybe it is direct. So your country, New Zealand, and my country are the only countries which allow direct-to-consumer advertising for yeah. pharmaceuticals correct? You, you see them in New Zealand. So the, if you, I didn't watch the Super Bowl, but I'm sure there were drug ads because, uh, but you know, 80% of the drug ads have something to do with diabetes because it's a billion dollar pharmaceutical bonanza, meaning these are very expensive medications. And of course, you know, the, the ads always show some smiley, happy, outdoor, athletic person, you know, starting this new diabetes medicine, but you know, that's not the reality. In the clinical world, we see, you know, we see them in the hospital, fatigued, obese with cardiovascular disease, you know, and, and trying to afford these medications, which are bankrupting them because of high co-pays. So it's, it is. So there's this image to the general public, and, and pharma drives medical education, right? I mean, it's, it drives medical school funding. It drives all these institutions, you know, whether it's the AHA or the ADIDA, you go to these conferences and it's it's like a you know a paradise of of booths of fancy stuff with pharmaceutical industry um it, it really turns me off that i don't like those conferences you know i even went to obesity week a few years ago which is you know you would think that okay let's try to get at the root cause of obesity and you're walking around the booths that's the uh, obesity medicine you know which is like its own specialty but i think we're failing because since the um 
since that institution started, obesity is just going higher in our country. But it's like every booth is, is some new device to you know, bypass your stomach or some new pharmaceutical to suppress your appetite, some new shakeology, artificial food substance. And uh, yeah, there's and, and I, I went there because we had this kind of backdoor meeting of, of uh, like this, this private low carb docs. Yeah. You know, we kind of all met up. It was in D.C. and, you know, we all kind of like had each other's text because we wanted it was like, you know, behind closed doors. Like, OK, how do you how do you storm the Bastille? You know, like we got to figure out how do we get and Eric Westman, you know, he was president at the time. So he was really pushing hard to get this in that education. Um, he's at Duke. But um, it's not, you know, he's been doing this for 20 years, you yeah. know, brilliant guy. And, yeah. Um, and uh, it is, it's, it's an uphill battle and, and it's a lonely one at times trying to make institutional change. So, I mean, Mark, you were also involved in the development of something called MedChefs. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, we started, this is based on Lustig's work, you know, so uh, I guess maybe 2013, wrote a grant to our school, you know, to bring in you know, cookery and, uh, you know, in insulin resistance science, exercise science, you know, kind of combine that to medical education. And my my main, um, I could share the original grant with you, my, my kind of role there, goal was to, you know, you can kind of teach them insulin resistance in many ways, but this was an avenue, I really could care less what they learned how to cook, but if they understood insulin resistance, then then we, I mean, they're medical trainees, and, and Robert Lustig partnered with us in that grant. He had just published his book, Fat Chance, which is, uh, he's a peds endo guy. Most uh, anyone in the space knows Robert Lustig. He's brilliant. He gave that talk, the, um, the, the sugar talk, Sugar the Bitter Truth, That's which I think right. is up to 10 million YouTube Amazing. views. And uh, then he drilled that down to the skinny on obesity, which like is like an hour watch like you could watch that I, patients can watch that but he's brilliant and he's an angry voice in the space you know he's even the sugar industry even kind of earmarked him as like one of the five most dangerous people to the sugar industry at one time you know in their internal documents you know we have to take out lusting yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, i don't know whose name was i would you know I, I would hope my name was on that too and let's bring it on yeah you know, so yeah like so we used his like career honor really wouldn't it you know, yeah it would be <laughs> how do we get on that list yeah you know just then you need your bodyguards or something uh, but but yeah he's but yeah he had learned from these super smart people and um so we he also had the fat chance cookbook which hadn't been published yet but we started giving um you know we'd show the skinny on obesity you know teach you know i had a whole set of slides we would show about insulin resistance you know which really is the elephant in the room hyperinsulinemia metabolic syndrome, skinny fat, right? Like how this affects cardiovascular disease. So we started that and then it kind of got derailed a little bit, unfortunately, because um, so there's another arm in the, in the world of, of this, uh, you know, culinary style medicine, you know, so there actually is a culinary medicine institute, which doesn't, uh, it's very, very much back in the uh, low fat, Atkins diet is actually a fad. So uh, the larger campus, um, got a hold of this and, and and I don't think it was was with ill intent but well here's this whole culinary medicine side we should use this because it's culinary medicine and not like just make up your own curriculum because they already have this curriculum and so I, I was kind of saddened by that because without really any input from me on the science we just made a complete about face and made it culinary medicine which is 
which still thinks salt is bad and saturated fat is bad, still believes that yeah. and puts that on their slides. And is it, and has Atkins is it pushing diet. more of a vegetarian yes, style? Yes, yeah. And, 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 you know, yeah. it's very much American College of Lifestyle Medicine yes. driven, a lot of similar themes. And if you look behind the curtain, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I do look at conflicts of interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so the ACLM is funded. There's not a single animal product on their website and they're funded by a lot of the fake food vegetarian type of foods right these food products big food you know making quote organic and healthy products with boxes and labels which should all be warning labels but it's really interesting mark so in so you know the the curriculum and the nutrition hasn't changed at all really um uh, from when I studied it um, at universities, but also like I'm, but I'm still blown away. I have a friend who just finished a couple of papers in naturopathy, you know, and they're so governed by that plant-based medicine, plant-based lifestyle, nutrition, and, and those messages that you just described—that you know, saturated fat is bad, salt is bad—that's just prevalent. And and so she did a she did an assignment that basically had, that was really well researched and reviewed had a lot of really up-to-date science and put it in and and she basically just passed the paper because she disagreed with the the lecturers and the and the curriculum premise of plants are better and and of course we're not saying that that plants aren't good you know but certainly no, no, you know not at all we agree on so much yeah but it's just that the the whole idea the rhetoric that meat is bad and is is the issue yeah, and the key, I think what everyone out there has to understand, too, is so there's healthy populations and unhealthy populations. So if you're completely healthy, you probably don't need any of our advice. Whatever you're doing is yeah. just fine. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's why, like, I've been on the, you know, the U.S. dietary guideline, you know, attack, <laughs> so which we failed in 2020 to really make any meaningful change. Because, you know, the U.S. dietary guidelines is based on a way of eating assuming you're a completely well person. Yeah. They don't take into account if you have obesity or diabetes. So what if you're a completely well person living in Boulder, Colorado and are 22 and walking and doing yoga every day, you know, you can as long as you're getting adequate protein, you would be fine on high carb, low fat. Just don't have junk food, right? Just just you're good. You're a healthy person. No junk food. You know, get that off the table. But if you take, you know, my patients here in West Virginia, 80% of them have some form of metabolic illness, right? Obesity, type 2 diabetes, insulin resistance. So if you, you that group is different. So that group needs a different approach. Yeah. So we can't just blank it out. Well, this is a healthy way of eating, you know, because these healthy people eat this way. I have to look at it as a medical treatment. Yeah. And we, if we're going to give any dietary advice blanket across the board to a country, the group that we should be addressing are the sick ones. Would, would that be a fair statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, they cost your system money, and they're the ones to benefit. If you're well, you don't need my advice, right? Go do what you're doing. So it's just nonsensical that we base, whether it's the U.K. or Canada, I'm not, New Zealand, there's probably some my plate thing, and, you know, obesity is going up, 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 but the standard, you know, posters in school are, you know, this low-fat skim chocolate milk, which is still, you know, allowed it's 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 crazy right you're just shaking your head but in 20 years maybe we'll be saying gosh do you believe we used to serve chocolate milk in school yeah that's what it's going to take imagine in if 20 we, years imagine if it was only 20 years it's kind of you know i'm like I, yeah, it's gonna it, take it feels more. like it feels like it's 
you know, a lifetime away, actually, when there'll be any big meaningful change. And you're so right, Mark, if we think about population guidelines around diet, you should really be trying to serve the majority of the people, which actually, who are unwell. Like, They're so, unwell. Yeah. yeah. So 88% in the UNC. Review. 100%, right? It's so that's, you're absolutely right about that. And like, even from the statistics, the kind of official statistics of, you know, we've got two thirds of the people in New Zealand are overweight or or carry excess body fat that contributes to their risk, you know, and that's the majority of the population, notwithstanding all of the undiagnosed kind of people with insulin resistance or, you know, type yeah, most 2 of the pre-diabetes don't even know they have it, you know, yeah. 80 to 90%. Yeah. And those that do, they just think, well, I just have pre-diabetes, that's okay, isn't it, Doc? Yeah, amazing. Like, no, no, it's, it's like, not being a little bit pregnant it's do you have it exactly it's, the terms are just so uh yeah we need to change the terminology and type 2 diabetes is a syndrome right it's not a disease it's a syndrome a spectrum of insulin resistance like pcos and you know non-alcoholic fatty liver you know variants of cardiovascular disease hypertension type 1 is a disease right you don't make insulin that's a specific lab you know diagnosed clinical manifested incident illness yeah. but type 2 it's it's a syndrome and we need to just change so pre-diabetes is in the syndrome right it's insulin resistance hyperinsulinemia carbohydrate intolerant it's really the the way the patient might understand it i have that syndrome where my body can't process carbohydrates well oh so what should i do Stop Get eating those carbohydrates. Carbohydrates. Yeah. <laughs> they all answer the question. I mean, we do a lot of, you know, if we were to do a banter like you were a patient, it's all getting them to talk and answer the obvious questions in their words. And they do it. They hesitate. You know, well, what do you get rid of then, they think. And you shut up. You don't tell them the answer. Even if it takes them like 10 seconds, you just kind of tap your foot. Well, if insulin's the problem, what drives your insulin, they think. Well, the carbohydrates. Okay, <laughs> next question. Yeah. Well, what do we need to get rid of? <laughs> and they roll their eyes and because they know that it's coming and because they love bread. And they're just like, ah, usually a sigh. Yeah, and it is. <laughs> and then the you laugh bread. about it, right? It's, it's okay, right? Look, I know, I know. It's, it's fine, right? Now let's talk about the addiction. Okay? Yeah, and that's we the see thing. the elephant in the room. Completely yeah. is. You know, it's so many people who I speak to, um, they, you know, when I talk to them about their carbohydrate load, they're like, but I love bread. And I'm like, we all love bread. Bread is designed to be loved, you know? <laughs> but it's that, uh, you know, it's... it's sorry. <laughs> like, and how do you talk to, to your patients about the addictive kind of nature or qualities yeah. of food, Mark? Well, I mean, you have to... T I mean, Robert Lustig wrote it brilliantly in the hijacking of the human mind, you know, about dopamine and serotonin, you know, so this is a dopaminergic effect, you know, it's the nucleus accumbens, it's just pinging that. Um, so you have to have that contentment part of your neurochemicals working. So dopamine is reward, right? So reward, you know, whether it's sugar, alcohol, caffeine, shopping, checking your phone, you know, whatever you attach alcoholic, uh, a, a holic to is dopamine, right? Ping, ping, ping. But then contentment we need too, and that's, I'm good. I don't need anything else. And that's serotonin, yeah. which is another positive neurochemical that's a mood enhancer. You get serotonin by running. Mm -hmm. Probably. It's like when you're 100%. out running, you're good. Yeah, yeah. I get serotonin by running. 
But if you're, think of like a lot of our patients, you know, they're in poverty, in a bad relationship, kids on drugs, and in West Virginia, right? So, you know, they're taking care of their grandkids. Now they're, they have three kids doing Zoom schooling, you know, and it's like their lives are, like there's no contentment in, in their lives right now. So it's really stressful. So there is a time and there's not a time to really go all in on this. So you got to like figure out what that is. And then, you know, I like Gretchen Rubin's approach too in addiction. You know, I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, mod moderators and abstinators, right? So some people like uh, the ones who need to be abstainers, meaning one piece of bread in their back end, they just have to tell themselves, look, I'm allergic to bread. Yeah. Yeah. And they need a, an affirmation, you know, for my body, sugar's a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body this love and respect. And you get them to write their own, because they got to wake up every day With and create intention. a new identity. You know, an identity, so you have an identity, Mickey, you're a runner, right? You're an athlete, you're an outdoor person. If people kind of knew you, that's part of your identity. You know, you write about it. Um, and they need to change. A lot of these people, their identity is so negative because they've been fat shame their whole lives. Their identity is that they're this weak, gluttonous, lazy person. They're not beautiful. You know, a lot of them have been through abuse and they have to change their identity. I'm a beautiful person. I'm a healthy person. You know, my people do not eat blank. It's a process, but once they get there, they're good. But they're, they let their guard down. Boom, it can come right back like any addiction. Joan Ifland has written the textbook on it, so anyone who's really wants to dive in, she's the world's expert. Uh, Joan Ifland in out in Washington. Yeah, and I'll include the food. links to like everything that we've talked yeah, about as well. Her, Mark. her textbook's mm. just called Food Addiction. She's the only one, and she has a website, Food Addiction Reset, I think it's called. But yeah, she, she does a lot of a lot of resources online, but even has groups, you know, group therapy. Awesome, thank you. So, Mark, um, if we were to leave people with just like two or three things which, um, and, and I'm thinking, you know, healthy people as well as people who might know that they need to address some aspect of, you know, their lifestyle in order to, to uh, either remain healthy or to become healthy, what would your advice be? Like, obviously you've got your download of your ebook or and, and things like that, which again I will pop in the show notes, but one or two things. I mean, I think, it, I mean, it's all basic stuff you know you got to move your body every day and mm -hmm. that's got to be enjoy enjoyable right so there has to be joy or it's not sustainable i mean whatever you do has to be joyful you know i look forward to tomorrow's omelet it brings me joy yeah. <laughs> so you know oh gosh that's extreme that omelet with bacon and cheese and vegetables that's so no it's like wonderful yeah. right? it's, so find joy in the natural things you know this is really our evolutionary biology you know we're designed to sleep we're designed to have good purpose in life so i think purpose in life is really good um yeah i mean find your tribe yeah you know and uh make sure that tribe is one that's going to help enhance your health i mean there's even research showing that your body weight's reflective of who you hang out with yeah. <laughs> you probably read some i mean you can find anything to support your point of view but yeah you start hanging out with people that treat themselves better you're going to start doing that yourself yeah, absolutely. And I feel and like... give yourself a break, too. It's been a pretty rough year for so many people, so don't don't be so hard on yourself, right? People have to... I, my patients don't... When first time you see them, they don't love themselves, a lot of them, because they've been shamed. Like, if you can get them to 
love themselves and know that they can get healthier, right? I've never met a single person who yeah. couldn't get healthier. Yeah. And finally, Mark, sorry, because um, I just said, oh, finally, Mark, tell us two or three things. But what I am interested in is how successful do you think that this conversation is going to be on Friday with the larger organization? Um, I'm optimistic because our dean's an endocrinologist, and she's very supportive and understands the science of all of this. So you need, you need someone kind of at the high level. So my, my part, my role in this conversation is going to be talking about the nutritional management. Yeah. So my role is pretty easy, like yeah. explaining all the endocrinology of how COVID affects the beta cells and the cytokine storm. I mean, there's like 80 page papers, but I could tell everyone, well, all we need to do, how about a small, short experiment? Let's do 10 grams of carbohydrates in yeah. that patient with COVID whose sugar is, you know, whatever, and check their sugar. Yeah. half hour after the meal and let's give 60 grams of carbohydrates yeah. so that's actually and 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 you know she's acknowledged that this is and the ada luckily so in 2013 it was kind of hidden in the american diabetes association standards of care it's it called for individualization of therapy which like no one knows what that means but in 2019 the document said the most powerful way to control blood glucose is control the carbohydrates in the diet yeah. or reduce the carbohydrates in the diet. So now, like they actually, because they always revise the guidelines. You can never say, well, we were wrong or something. You know, they always update the guidelines. So now all I have to do is, look, this isn't me making this up. You know, by medical ethics, we should be offering people this option. Now, if they say, look, no, I'm too bread addicted, just give me bread and more insulin patients deserve they have rights mm. and if we're not telling them the most powerful way of controlling their sugar and their sugar impacts their mortality then we're wrong right we're we're out of ethical standards and I'll, I'll paint it like that right this is an ethical obligation yeah you've got to know their and options. then we have to learn as a team like who's going to teach them this well I, you know Maybe the doc on knows nothing about this, but we need to find the right person on every team to come in and help educate this person for when they go home. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because that's so really several when, layers. The, that's when a, the rubber hits the road, really, is when they're it's out when the of rubber. That. Yeah, I mean, in the hospital, we can just, you know, lock them down and not give them bread. But then when they go home, like, I want them to learn something, right? That's If they learn something while they're in the hospital, that will help them when they leave. Yeah. Absolutely. Most patients in the hospital, COVID or non-COVID, leave the hospital with worse glucose management than when they came in because the hospital takes control of it. Most diabetes patients, sure, they check their sugar, they might use insulin or their meds or go for a walk, but when the hospital extracts control of the patient, you know, and starts to manage it externally, reactively, it's, I mean, you can imagine, it's roller coaster sugars. Yeah, yeah. It's a mess, so flat line is what we want yeah. I, I, my hope and we'll follow up you know I put in maybe that someone have, has replied now but I put in a plea as like what would it take to get a continuous glucose monitor on every patient with COVID these things cost 50 US dollars yeah yeah for a hospital bill in an ICU yeah that's 50 dollars is the toilet paper yeah I'm not making that up yeah, right? it's yeah. the it's like one little needle it's like a little nothing right? yeah. they, they charge you 50 bucks for that little iv catheter needle. yeah yeah oh that would be amazing and it's less invasive it's like and all someone would need to do is hold up you know this little monitor in the window yeah 
and you would see, you know, you f have a fancier remote way, but you don't even need fancy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mark, best of luck. Fingers yeah, crossed. I'll let you know that. how it goes. Do it. Slow forward progress. Now, <laughs> never give up. Never give never up. Give up. Exactly. Now, never give up. Exactly. Now, for um, I'll put links to your um, academic papers as well as you know the free download, um, and the other the other resources that we mentioned. Where can people find you, Mark, on social? Yeah. So um, I have a website, Dr. Mark's Desk, and uh, on that probably I have a I wrote a book. If this stuff interests you, it's called Run for Your Life. So runforyourlifebook.com. I have a resource tab. Has a lot of the running stuff, some nutrition stuff there. So that's a good place to go. I'm not on social media a lot, uh, just because it's busy right? yeah <laughs> like yeah so I'm just not really active on that space that much yeah um, but your blog and your website is such a yeah natural running center yeah. I do blogs I'll send you a few things that you could throw in there some recent things about dissecting the dietary guidelines and the US News and World Report best diets where they put keto next to last Mate, I know. <laughs> you know they put like biggest I... loser diet above that where it like freaking kills people yeah you know i know it's, ridiculous it's, isn't it's it? nonsensical no, that would be amazing i'll share that that one out um thank you but Mark. yeah yeah just keep encourage your people and i love your show mickey you've interviewed so many friends and colleagues and People that are curious, I'm curious, and yeah, you know, there's so much left to learn. Oh, and this is the best part about it, Mark. Is I get to and talk sharing. to people like you. I love like being you. on shows like this, just sharing knowledge. Yeah, you know, I learn from you and your people that you interview. I listened to Lily's talk the other day, and she's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. You'd go in and uh, listen to Dan Plews. Yeah, you know, so he's. It'd be great, it's and, always and you know, it's everyone is, is so generous with their time, Mark. So, I mean, I'm super lucky that people just want to get the information out there. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, but, you know, one one patient at a time, right? Like you're doing. Exactly. One person learns this. Exactly. Then you, yeah. you go home, feel good about your day. Yeah, for sure. Thanks so much, Mark. Okay. Have a great uh, day, right? This morning, get your coffee. talk and he certainly is such a great uh, character and really didn't like kind of pull any punches with regards to his opinion on the state of affairs with regards to health and metabolic health but you can just tell his passion through talking to him about where he sees it's necessary to make change to improve overall health and you know as a fellow runner I just absolutely loved chatting to him. As I said, you can find Mark at drmarksdesk.com and I will include relevant links in the show notes. Next week, I bring to you my conversation with Fleur Cushman from Currens and we talk all about black currants, which is this unique New Zealand grown black currant product, which is really just astounding the type of health benefits and sport performance benefits the research is showing up and these are in human trials as well which is amazing so I chat to Fleur Cushman next week and until then you can find me over on Twitter and Instagram at Mickey Willardin, on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition or over on my webpage mickeywillardin.com where you can Find my latest blog posts, send me an inquiry, book a consultation or jump on my online nutrition coaching platform. 
where I provide you with meal plans, shopping lists, a weekly email, and the ability to contact me to individualize your approach to your nutrition. And I'm currently working on Mondays in May, which is my new fat loss, guided fat loss program designed to get you in shape as we move into that new season. So um, I'm super excited to bring that to you and I will share more details as they come to hand. Until then, peeps, you have a great week and catch you next week. See you later. Mm-hmm.